Episode 6. The smallest oceans still get big, big waves. How much longer is this going to take, do you think? Because you know there's a solution right here, don't you? It's that same solution you snorted before you started on this indulgent odyssey. The beauty of ketamine is that there's no hangover, man. You could come away from the window, put all this pain in a lead-lined box and dump it in the Thames. Just saying. You haven't found anything yet. Nothing to justify throwing in the towel. I remember being stood outside Mr Stone's office. Fuck's sake. Colin was in there getting grilled for misbehaviour. It was my turn next. He came out with his usual indignant smile, gave me a high five and skipped off down the corridor, telling me to check out the fags in Mr Stone's shirt pocket when I went in. The corridor was plastered with students' artwork, a staple gunned mosaic of the brightest and best. Nothing of mine was up there. I'd given up on art. Having had a romantic vision of becoming an artist at the start of the year, I jacked it in after a few weeks with the teacher, Mrs Bevan. Nice enough, but on another planet, and not exactly a well of inspiration. I was finding that with most teachers in one way or another. School wasted precious time that could be spent doing anything else, including getting stoned, of course. Hamish's art was all over the walls. He was the year above, but was allowed extra art classes with the younger students because of his talent. With my new hazy outlook on the world, I could step back and appreciate my cousin's wild output again, an electrical storm on a distant shore. He was so capable, and he was going to go far whatever he did, expectations riding high. As artists go, I was amateur in comparison. Plus, I didn't have the patience for long and thoughtful art projects. I spent most of my time making album covers and flirting with Jade Baker. Jade, back on the radar. She was dating Alex the Toolbag, but had plenty of room in her schedule for some adolescent teasing. Leaning forward over here, tits against you there. And let's be fair to Mrs Bevan for a second. Mr Bevan had just run off with another man. She spent most of her time munching overripe avocados and staring into the middle distance. Free pass to do fuck all as far as I'm concerned. I was over school. I was over dead-end Norsville. I couldn't wait for the year to be over so I could start saving over the summer to get out of there. Where? I didn't know yet. What prehistoric school system makes you wear a uniform at 17? Compulsory shorts? Your chicken knees reminding you what not to wear out of school hours? Ridiculous. How were the little ones supposed to know they weren't allowed to talk to you? It was the right decision to want to quit. Hey, I know. Let's chalk up your reasons for leaving one last time, just in case you get to the other side of this unnecessary recall with any regrets. Reason number one, nice and simple, the school uniform, see above. Reason number two, hopes of going to art school up in smoke, quite literally. Reason number three, the test you took to determine your possible career options said teacher or religious leader. Not in your wildest dreams did you want that to happen. Should have walked out of the gates there and then, really. It wasn't unusual for me and Colin to get summoned by teachers, but I had a feeling it was for different reasons. I was lazy and late, whereas Colin was a real pain in the ass for them, disruptive and completely unintimidated by the system that was writing him off day by day, happy to answer back and bask in the glory of my laughter if he was sent out. If I couldn't keep a straight face, I'd be swept up like an accomplice and told I was wasting my potential. I remember the laughter, lots and lots of giggles, but it's telling that I can't think of a single thing Colin actually said. I'm blaming the skunk. No, no, hang on, hang on, wait a minute now, wait. Let's think of something. 
Let's think of something funny that Colin said. Mr Stone called me into his office. I had no idea why. English was about the only thing I was vaguely interested in anymore. He was weirdly pleased to see me, intrigued even, a rare grin under his brush. Still, I assumed I was there for a grilling and took up the position of guilty, perched on the edge of the seat ready to leave. He was a short, cartoonish man, with cola-brown glasses too big for his face, wispy hair swept vaguely sideways. His token tweed jacket made you sweat just to look at, his short red tie screamed last minute. I'd always thought Mr Stone was a character he had to play from nine to five. Whatever his first name was, that was his true identity. He wasn't much liked by the other pupils. He seemed pretty fair and forgiving to me. In the bulge of his white shirt pocket, you could see the brand of his fags. Twenty red royals for the head of English, please. There were whispers of his wife leaving him, and two kids he never saw. He made you read Narcissus and Goldman as punishment for missing a deadline. Is that forgiving? He stared at me for a minute, tapping his pen on his leg as he sat back, figuring me out one arm behind his head. I liked your story. He was talking about the one I submitted for mock exams. I didn't think it was anything special. I was probably stoned when I wrote it. It was something about a mother sending her two sons off to fight in the war, one to the English and one to the German. I called it an interest in successes on both sides. Mr Stone sat forward, serious. You did well. Eventually. I'd been late. Eighty-two percent. That's an A, he said. Is it? He said he'd like to see me carry that level into my final exams. Said perhaps I needed to focus more. Perhaps spend a little less time with my friends. I knew what he meant. That's an A. His words. Perhaps you needed to focus less. He gave me another compliment. I liked your song, too. He was talking about the one I'd played in the talent contest. It was a song I'd written about Tanya, but it was cryptic as all hell. No chance of meaning being exposed. He asked me what it was called with his pen poised. It was called The Organ Plays on Friday. The Organ Plays on Friday. Scribbling it down. Very cool. You were the best thing about that talent show. Certainly the only one that did anything original. Should have won, but you know, politics and whatnot. Mr Stone sat back in his seat again, switching character, hands back behind his head. The grilling didn't seem to be making an appearance. Do you write a lot of songs? I shifted in my seat and got comfy to answer. I don't know. Yeah? He asked me about my inspirations. I reeled off as many obscure names as I could think of, not because they inspired me particularly, but because I was trying to alienate him. He nodded along, pretending to know what I was talking about. And still no mention of Guns and Roses. He asked me if I liked any old music. I said I knew some. Then it was his turn to reel off names and alienate me. I was surprised I was so in the dark could only recognise a handful. He asked me if I knew Bob Dylan. I said, of course. He chuckled and sat forward again, formalising the meeting, snapping back into the role he was meant to be playing. He had a really distinctive laugh. The truffle snuffler. Remember that laugh. He wanted to read the lyrics to my song sometime, if that was okay. I was fine with that. I'd become paranoid about the idea that someone would steal my songbooks, so I hid all meaning behind various personalised codes. He wasn't going to penetrate that force field. Mr Stone stood and gestured me towards the door. I obeyed. One last thing before you go. He asked if I knew visions of Johanna. I stopped and turned around. It's Dylan, 
he said. Probably then. He's found a good one. Little boy lost, he takes himself so seriously, brags of his misery and likes to live dangerously. I think you might appreciate it. The Lord moves in mysterious ways. I scraped through my exams and got to the summer holidays, not caring about grades, knowing that I wouldn't be going back. It's worth remembering that you got 0% for your art project. Managing to blag a whole year of doing actually nothing was an art project in itself, dude. 100% zero. Be proud. Mum didn't seem bothered about the idea of me leaving home, even if there was no plan beyond the leaving itself. She was a new age hippie now, opting for a laissez-faire attitude towards my future. She seemed happy enough, and being left alone suited me just fine. I got some labour work on the Black's farm, docking and castrating lambs, collecting and stacking hay bales. It was free time inside my head, jogging behind the trailer in the dusk. My hay fever got pretty raw at times, my eyes streaming by the time I got home, but I was willing to put up with that for a job that was mindless and in the outdoors. It was all about saving for whatever I was going to do when I'd accrued some capital. That should only take a few months. You're really racing through this chapter, aren't you? What are you hiding from? Oh, wait. I know. Go back. Jade sidled up to me in art class, said she needed a model for her assignment on figures. She said I had a nice body, invited me over to her house. Yeah, why not, eh? Believing the hype just because. She'd borrowed a camera from Mrs. Bevan and bought two rolls of film, one colour, one black and white. She hung some sheets up in her bedroom and pointed some lamps about. You stood there in your boxes trying not to get wood. She was using the black and white film first, which would help hide how pale you were, basically see-through like a newborn fish. Jade was taking it all very seriously, but that was for show. It was getting mighty hot in there. If only Jade's mum hadn't come home, eh? She made her presence known for sure. Licked her fingers and stubbed out the wick. Pun, well, pun in there somewhere. Jade threw you your t-shirt and flicked on the main light. Game over. What about the colour film? I said. She looked disappointed. A few moments of mystery. Did she want to bang, or did she want to get some pictures? She did have a boyfriend, after all, although she wasn't known for that being a barrier. I was gunning for the lust. I wanted to believe the smutty rumours. Good job you let your dick do the talking. I could do with some pictures for my project too, you know, I said. I was going to get some magazines or something, but man, live model would be so much cooler. Her eyes twinkled. I can do that. Jackpot. A bold move justified and inspired by boogie nights, I reckon. Who knew porn could be so arty? Jade tried to hide it, but that twinkle in her eyes had started life in the minge, no question. Out to the car with a lamp in your hand and butterflies in your gut. Everything going smoothly. But uh uh-oh, guess what? Old fucking ditzy over there wandering off in his head again. In the five-minute ride to your house, instead of thinking about how to make your move, You were thinking about your future as a photographer. You started as a perceptive, moody prodigy, living in a high-rise studio overlooking New York, known for his tasteful nudes and his enigmatic portraits of the homeless. Then you climbed the ladder, had Hollywood royalty queuing up to have their picture taken. The detail of having Jade as a former jealous muse was a hangover from your fantasies of being an artist. It was a nice touch, but why only a cameo for her? From there you ventured into being an established director invented some on-set bust-ups, saw the premieres and heard the awards speeches, fell into the pools at the after-show parties. So much unnecessary detail. 
Got your priorities all fucked again, didn't you? Back at my house, mum was out, but it wouldn't have mattered if she wasn't. Intrusion into each other's spaces had never been an issue. Ever. I had a vague concern that my covers were still on the floor by the stereo, and no doubt a finished toilet roll lurking somewhere, but mainly I was focused on trying to figure out how to use the camera, unable to engage with what was actually happening in front of me. Jade stripped to her knickers and lolled about on the bed. You were free to have a good old gawk down the lens at her milky skin and those two sweet jelly tots, pubic spiders from the edge of black cotton. I didn't know where to begin making a move on her. I switched interests rather than face any embarrassment or rejection. Aperture? F-stop? Shutter speeds? The fuck are you doing taking more interest in the camera than the tits you're pointing it at? Fucking boogie nights. She had too much experience for the likes of me. Way too up for it. You asked her over. I hid a boner behind bent limbs trying to find the right angles and clicking away. It had become a realistic idea that I'd stay on at school for the last year after all, get some freelance experience and take advantage of the supplies. I took the roll of film from the camera as Jade got dressed, suddenly distant and embarrassed, eager to leave. A few days later I went to collect the pictures from town, confident that whoever had developed them would see them as classy art rather than amateur porn. The sniggering clerk handed me a disappointingly thin envelope, nothing but blank negatives. I asked where the pictures were, and he took great pleasure in telling me I'd underexposed everything, so there weren't any. Oh, a perceptive prodigy, eh? Too much dignity, not enough light. Good job we went through this, though. Another mark on the tally for reasons to run away. Reason number four. Failed, and I mean really failed, at being a photographer. You aborted that dream on the day of conception, you dumbass. That's all right. That's life. Photography is too expensive anyway. Do something that you already know about. Something that comes naturally. You fancy another line yet? How about a little smoke for the come down? Jade got her photos back. I only ever got to see one of them. Her boyfriend Alex had found them, and after dumping her on the spot in a rage of jealousy, he'd stolen the ugliest one he could find photocopied a bunch and stuck them up all around the halls of school, vandalising the art projects with my ugly, ghostly presence. In the picture, the flash had gone off, startling me into a white slab of hairless meat. I was caught in the middle of blinking and talking, my that'll-have-to-do teeth on full display. From then until the end of term, I heard giggles and whispers echoing through the corridors a lofty addition to my ever-growing sense of paranoia. Do you want to live in a town that remembers you for that? Didn't think so. Reason number five. Humiliation past the point of no return. Thanks for that. Carry on. At the end of a long, hard summer, I drove home from work one evening past Drake's Bay and memories of Hamish leaping from the top of the cliff while I was skimming stones. I was able to smile and remember that dreamlike summer spent following Hamish around like a happy lapdog. It had been a 10-hour day of labour on the farm and I was starving. I went to Price Chopper and bought my staple post-work meal of hot dog, morrow bar, vanilla slice, bag of lollies, bag of kettle chips and half a litre of ginger beer. I sat in the car and smashed the lot licking hungrily at my sugary gums. Seventeen years of mum's mints and tatties had taken its toll. I knew nothing about food, and mum had set no examples. I'd always been an uncomfortable cook. I loved being the boss of my own diet, 
One less thing to think about as far as I was concerned. Munch the junk and get it over with. I started rolling a cigarette for the drive home when there was a knock on my window. It was Mr Stone. I barely recognised him without his glasses. He looked like he'd just walked off a beach from the 70s. For some reason, I instinctively threw my tobacco tin into the footwell before winding down the window, remembering halfway that I'd done pretty badly in my English exam. I hear you're leaving us. He had that same nervous grin that looked like it was reserved for me. Hey, Mr. Stone. Yeah, bigger fish to fry or something. If you're leaving, you don't have to call me Mr. Stone anymore. Please. He reached his hand out. I supposed I should shake it. Call me Arthur. He asked me what my plan was, but I didn't have an answer. I'd appreciated his belief in me and felt I owed him though. Sorry I messed up my exam, sir. I should have done better. He waved his hand insistently, said he wasn't Mr. Stone to me anymore. That was just a role he played. He were right. He said my talent was obvious and that school wasn't for everyone. He said I'd succeed wherever I went. And up went the pedestal. You got a minute? Want to see something? I couldn't think of a reason why not. I got out and followed him across the car park. He jumped into his tan car and reached across to unlock the passenger side. He drove us back onto the main road and headed north away from the gorge, Rai on the tape deck. We took a right up a track that took us to the top of the town and pulled into a lay-by. He jumped out and gestured for me to follow, hopping over an iron gate to a proud field that overlooked the whole of Norsville, lit only by the burgundy sunset. I could make out a tiny silhouette of Uncle Paul and Aunt Kath's castle. Mr. Stone stood by my side as we gazed upon the world. Arthur? He asked me to look in particular at the ruts in the earth. Every few hundred metres the ground seemed to shunt itself upwards in steps. There were five or six consecutive plateaus before rolling acres of farm took up the slack and disappeared into the mountains. You see that? He said. That's earthquakes. Apparently, when the Europeans arrived in the 1870s, there were only a few of those ruts. The land used to be much flatter and with more trees. The explorers set up camp by the forest that was known as the 80 Mile Bush, which they then dismantled to sell the wood to the railroad companies. That was why Norsville was known as a sleeper town, but I could think of some other reasons. The new inhabitants paid homage to the Norse gods and moved the Faranui 10 miles west. I'd been following OK until he said Faranui. He could tell I didn't know what that meant, so I thought I may as well ask. A Faranui was a traditional meeting house, a place of community for Maori. So can you tell me what Waitangi Day is? Mr Stone replacing Arthur for a moment. Isn't that when the whites got the natives drunk and made them sign all the land over? He snuffled his distinct chuckle. Something like that. His take on Waitangi was that for the whites it was a day of celebration, symbolising frontier and the founding of a new world. For Maori, it was a day of reflection and a podium for injustice, a chance to remind the world of their hoodwinked ancestors. Sorry, is this going anywhere? He was saying that life was bigger than all of us, that whoever we were, Whatever we believed in, we were always and forever at the mercy of something we couldn't control. He said to forget caring what other people thought, because when the universe was ready, it would shunt us all out of kilter without warning, just like the ruts that stretched out before us. Gotta follow your heart, son, he said, tapping his shirt by the red royals that said hi from his pocket. Hello. We stood silent. I think I understood, 
He seemed to be saying that nothing we do matters, but that we should do it anyway, and with vigour. Sounded to me like he was trying to get rid of you. Did you read that book I gave you? Well, it had a good cover. Herman Hiss. I quoted the one line I could remember. Full of secrets, life stared at him. A murky, unfathomable world. An impenetrable, thorny forest, full of fabulous perils. He smiled proudly. There's a Maori proverb, said Arthur. Kamate kainga tahi, kaora kainga rua. It means, when one house dies, another house lives. Whew, that was exhausting. We headed back to town. He drove straight past the car park where we'd hooked up. Maybe he wanted to show me something else. I was thinking about the mess of tobacco in my footwell and having to sift through the chocolate wrappers and greasy paper bags to save it. He pulled up outside my house. I didn't think to ask how he knew where I lived, just reminded him that my car was down at Price Chopper. He chirped that laugh again, turned back up the street and made the drop-off, hoped he'd see me again before I went wherever I was going. I made a cigarette from tobacco, dry mud and fluff before driving myself home and crashing out on the floor by the stereo, still not sick of no code. Not a bad habit. Dusk on the farm, late January 1999, and I was hosing sheep's blood down the slaughterhouse drain with Kingy, the head labourer. He was proudly showing me the eel he'd speared for his supper. It was dead slime coiled in a bucket of filthy water to me. No amount of seasoning could make that palatable. Across the paddock, Mr. Black, the boss man, came speeding through the evening mist on his quad bike, headlights only just necessary. He pulled up next to us as we stood vaguely to attention. Jump on, we've got to go, he said in a hurry. There'd been an accident. It was Hamish. I jumped on and we sped off towards the farmhouse. Mr. Black told me what he knew. Hamish had been racing his dad's car along Knight's Road. A possum had run out and he'd swerved to avoid it gone through the barrier, flying down the bank and rolling the vehicle twice, ending up in the river. Hands up, who thinks Hamish was trying to hit that possum? He was in hospital, critical condition. Aunt Kath and Uncle Paul were there, but no one had told Mum yet. She wasn't answering the phone. I was to go home and track her down, then get us to the emergency ward as quick as possible. There was a car parked in the middle of the drive when I got home. I was too focused on finding Mum to question it, but it seemed oddly familiar. Tan, with a mustard door. I went in through the back door. All the lights were off apart from Mum's bedroom at the end of the hall. My mind was playing catch-up through the adrenaline. If she's home, why isn't she answering the phone? I tiptoed up the hallway as something unnerved me. There it is. The truffle snuffler. I approached Mum's door, ignoring the unwritten rules about space invasion. What a stupid laugh. The phone in the kitchen started ringing as I flung Mum's door open. Oh. I could tell it was the aftermath by the guilt on their faces the state of the covers and what I assumed was the musty smell of middle-aged sex. Mum and Mr. Stone froze, half-naked at the end of the bed. The phone was still ringing. I imagined the relative minor as I stared at the busted lovers, all of us tranquilised and unable to speak. The phone wasn't stopping. For God's sake, just answer it. Get that gross old turtle sex out of your head. Wide-eyed, I turned up the hallway. Mum was trying to explain herself her footsteps thudding after me on a floor with no foundations. I got to the phone. It was Aunt Kath. Hamish was dead. Reasons number six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. 